This is our second week of Advent, and this is the week of peace. And one only has to think, I don't know if you heard this terrible story, of the quadriplegic man who was in a wheelchair, obviously, and somebody came and snatched his iPhone from him. You just read stuff like that and you realize we don't really often live in a world of peace. Or you think of the Black Friday mobs, or you think of what's happening on the streets of Cairo in the last few days and weeks. You think of the panic that's beginning to spread across the globe over the Mayan calendar. And you just realize that in general, we don't seem to be a people of peace. And in fact, as if I think about it just kind of straightforwardly, if I try to think about it honestly, Self-centeredness, self-absorption, fighting for our rights, our space, or our voice or position. This kind of fighting seems not only normative today, but encouraged. Like if you're really alive or if you're really kind of going for it, then we actually are encouraged to live in these sorts of ways. It's kind of become a conventional wisdom or like a default position. And it's irony to me because on the other hand, It seems that we value acceptance and tolerance. But I see increasingly um, our culture as a whole shunning the purity and the virtue necessary to live such a life. So do you hear what I'm saying? If you just look at the news, if you just pick up a newspaper, it's just very clear that the globe as a whole after 2,000 years is not becoming particularly peaceful. And then you have our popular rhetoric in songs and media that's extolling the virtues of tolerance and sort of can't we all just get along? And there's a reason the answer is no. These things don't exist by happenstance. There's a reason that there's this big backdrop and there's this reason why we don't really be able to seem to make a dent in it. And I want to suggest again, it's because we shun the notion that a human being could actually attain, we don't even like this word, I don't think, the purity or the virtue necessary to actually live that out. Because what's actually happening is we seem to be becoming actually more intolerant. It's like the more we scream tolerant, we seem to actually be becoming more intolerant and more fighting. On the other hand, peace is kind of a central cardinal issue in the Bible. When Aaron was given to bless the people of God, one of the things he was given to bless them with was to pray that the Lord would grant them peace. The psalmist said, great peace has those who love the law. Jesus' frequent greeting to his first friends was, peace be with you. Paul said that the kingdom of God is peace. He said that to be filled with the Spirit is to be a person of peace. Paul taught us that the fruit of the Spirit is peace and that the peace of God would guard our hearts. And then Colossians asked us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Now, Advent, as I said last week, has kind of a penitential vibe to it. It has a celebratory vibe because we look back and we acknowledge and honor and worship as we did in our singing tonight, the coming of Jesus. But it's got a little bit of a penitential flavor, a little kind of self-reflection flavor, because as our reading from Malachi taught us tonight, we know that there's this other coming to come. 
And so in our Advent, in our readings, in our worship, we kind of move in and out of these themes. And so if we think about what I've said so far, what I want us to think now, kind of using the, one of the penitential threads of Advent, is to just stop for a moment tonight and think that most of us are malformed in many ways away from peace and towards selfishness or fear or insecurity. And so our reading in Malachi tonight gives us this Advent promise that the Lord that you are seeking will come. You see that in the first couple sentences of our Advent reading, of our Malachi reading tonight. And then if you go down a couple of sentences, though there's this Advent reality or Advent warning that says, but who will be able to stand up to that coming and who can survive his appearance? And then you have these two metaphors. For when he comes, he'll be like a white hot fire from the smelter's furnace. That is to say, turning up this silver or gold or precious metal, turning up the heat in it until the impurities separate and then they're removed. And probably you've heard the old story from antiquity that, that the smelter knew that it was becoming what it should be when he could see his face reflected in the silver or the gold. And this, of course, is what Malachi's picturing. And then he uses this second illustration that when God comes, again, this kind of, it's a, it's a warning, not in the, a punitive sense, but a warning in like letting you know that what he'll be doing when he comes is he'll be like somebody using the strongest lye soap that there is at the laundry, cleaning these dirty clothes. Now, to help us, because I, I just think we intuitively don't really like this word purity. It sounds self-righteous or unattainable. Am I right? I mean, you just don't hear this in common language. And if you do, I, I think most of us are a little taken back by it because they're like, come on, who can be pure? And anybody who says that they are, it just sounds self-righteous. But the purification that's happening in this text or the purification that is trying to call our mind to tonight is really something that is though lovely. It's meant to make in our hearts a place that's hospitable for God. That's all that's in view here. Nothing particularly religious, certainly nothing self-righteous. What's in view here is how can we participate in what God's doing such that we make places in our hearts that are more ideal, and this is what Malachi would have had in mind, to covenant faithfulness. So God's doing this thing. Israel's living outside of it. Malachi's calling them back. And he's saying that if you hear this word and you begin to come back, then what's intended for you here is that you will begin to make places in your heart in which covenant faithful kinds of behaviors are more the norm. And then, of course, the process is complete when the refiner's face is seen, when, when Israel actually is Israel and God as God intended. And then updating it for us, sitting in this Advent season between the times, then we will be humanity as God intended. Now, this I think raises some questions, such as, what exactly in my life is in need of refining? Now, we'll talk more about this tonight when we have our conversation around the fire over there. But if you've ever wondered why do we have silences in, in our services, it's so that we can pay attention to these kinds of things. What in my life is in need of refining? A second question. What if I'm confused? 
about this or blinded to it? What do I do? How do I, how do I participate in this? Maybe you ask, well, will it hurt? I mean, this, this sounds sort of ominous. These, you know, anytime you hear fire, you know, sounds sort of ominous. Like, is this going to hurt? And it might. And so we wonder, well, how much? What might I have to give up? Because I think what goes on is sometimes we want to be different, but we don't want to go through the process. We don't want to go through the change. We don't want to go through anything that sounds like pain. Of course. Of course, this shouldn't surprise any of us. Of course, that's the natural human initial reaction. But in the canticle that we read tonight, the, the, uh, the um, antiphonal reading we did from Luke, canticle just means song. So this song we lifted from Luke tonight, if you look at it, it shows us something of God's intent in this, though, that what God's intention is, is to redeem that is to say, to sort of buy us or get us back. And as a potter, you know, as the scriptures say, to reshape us into his image. And that Luke says he's going to do this through this savior that John the Baptist is promising is coming. And the goal, similar to what Malachi was saying, it, you know, in Malachi, it's all about covenant faithfulness. Here, it's all about how it is that we can serve God without fear. And I want you to look at the very last line of that leading, reading in Luke 1. And that he would guide our feet into peace. Peace in Christianity, peace in the life of somebody who's trying to follow Jesus, who's trying to be his disciple or apprentice or student, is not a little one-off. And a lack of peace explains discord in the workplace, in school, in politics, in families, in friendships. I mean, it can be the explainer of most of the pain that happens human to human. And so in our reading in Luke 3, we're encouraged to become a person of peace by seeking transformation. So if you look at your reading in John 3, you see that John is preaching a baptism of repentance. This is different than the baptism that we practice today in the church. This is a baptism calling Israel to rethink its common life, both personally, but as the nation Israel. And so repentance, when it says that John is preaching a baptism of repentance, it means that he's preaching a baptism of life change. And so when we do do our baptisms in the church today, you know, living in this time between the times, between the two advents, when we do our baptisms today, we have these vows that we take. For instance, we ask and answer affirmatively if we want to be baptized, do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Do you renounce them? Well, yes, except for occasionally it's really, per it's really important to me getting my way that I actually be a person of unpeace. So yes, if you ask me on a rhetorical level, Maybe even on a theological level, if you ask me, do I renounce evil? Yes, but I want to hang on to little bits of it when I need it. And of course, again, this just explains the pain in most human relationships. Or we ask in the baptismal vows, do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you away from the love of God? Do you promise to follow Jesus and obey him as your Lord? So then what John gives us, I want you to look at your text there. What John the Baptist gives us there in this text is I think a picture of formation. 
where if you picture your heart or your mind or maybe your sense of consciousness or maybe you picture your will, your, you know, your capacity as a human being to choose and then hear these words, every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth. And, you know, on the one hand, that's, that's a pretty picture. I mean, that's a, that's a lovely picture, isn't it? On the other hand, it kind of leads us back to, that's a lot. That, now, that starts sounding like sort of purity again or some sort of goodness that seems attainable to me. And this is why we read the epistle. He who began a good work in you. See, when Malachi, by the time Malachi talks to Israel, they had already for many generations been chosen and shepherded and kept hanging together as a nation by God. You see, it's God's initiation in this always. It's not that we wake up one morning and realize, I'm not a person of peace. And then so we think, oh, well, then I guess I'll try to become something different. No, it's God who began a good work in you. And then look at your Philippians passage. It's um, near the end. God began a good work in you. This is the grace, the initiating grace of God. In Old Testament terms, as we've been talking, the covenant faithfulness of God. He began a work in you, and he will carry it to completion until that second advent. Do you see why now this is sort of an advent reading? We live in these time between the times where God's initiated something in us. And I'm going to say in a moment that formation goes on, but it will be completed until the day of Jesus Christ. So let's just stop here for a moment and think, how does formation work? Well, the first thing, as we said, is God begins it. And then if you look at verse 9, it says that there's a steady progress that he enables that's marked by love. Love overflowing more and more. Okay, so there's peace. And peace is not just the absence of conflict, though, of course, it includes that. It can't be reduced to that. Peace is something more like, you know, the Hebrew term shalom and overall wellness or wholeness, a, a, a kind of a flourishing of the human soul and mind and body. Very much like the Greek term sozo for salvation. It, it really picks up a lot of the brokenness of, of humanity and rolls it all up into these, little, these two terms, shalom or sozo. And what's in view here is that as we go through our days, kind of conversation by conversation, event by event, we are either agents of, through positive acts of love, overflowing more and more agents of shalom, peace, or, or salvation and healing, sozo, or we're not. And this is what alerts us to the kind of broken places in us that when the rubber meets the road, when the moment's on, can we actually execute on or perform or do what it is that on a rhetorical level, on just a language level, a saying level, we say that we intend? And this is why John calls for kind of a relentless energy or action towards becoming a new creation. I mean, look at the passage with me again and just note these verbs. Prepare, make straight paths, fill valleys, 
even out high spots, align the crooked, smooth the rough. One could make John into somebody who Calvin would have utterly hated, right? Or Luther, or, you know, like, is, is that who John is? Is John some sort of, you know, proto, out of control Pelagian? Would John think that somehow we earn our way before God? Is that what's going on in this text? That God thinks that this is really all about human effort? Is that what John thinks, you think? No, what he's saying is that there's something that we do as we cooperate with God and that this repentance, it's not legalistic. It's not about meritoriousness. That would have been the farthest thing from the, John's mind and the New Testament's mind, obviously. It has nothing to do with that. It's practical. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve Jesus' way of peace and reserve to yourself the right to get ticked when it's to your benefit. When you just have that little moment where you need to control a situation, so you just pull it out. Because after all, you have to make yourself safe in that situation. Or ensure that you get your way. And so when Jesus says you can't serve two masters, he's not being legalistic either. He's simply being practical. Or when he says, unless you take up your cross and crucify yourself, you cannot follow me. That is not a moralism. Jesus is not saying, I won't let you follow me because you're all imperfect. He's saying you can't. You can't follow me and follow where you're going. Are you hearing me here? It's not a moralism. It's a simple, practical statement. Jesus is going this way. You can't go where you're going and follow him at the same time. You have to choose. When Jesus tells the parable, the treasure buried in the field of the pearl of great price, it's the same thing. He's telling parables that were designed to clarify human intention. If you see the kingdom as this pearl, as you see the kingdom as this treasure, are you willing to arrange the affairs of your life? If you're a real estate agent, you'd leverage your assets to get this holding. If you were a pearl merchant, you'd leverage your pearls to get this pearl of great price. Listen again. When Jesus says, maybe actually the most stunning, at least in my humble view, maybe the most stunning parable of the kingdom in all of the New Testament when he says in that parable, look, I will take the kingdom from you and give it to others who will give me the fruit that is due to my father. He was only being practical. You know that parable, the tenant farmers? These things all fit in the same sort of thing. It's just like when Jesus said, if you drink of that water, you'll thirst again. Like if you insist on sort of living life the way it's trained you to live it, I would say malformed us to live it. If you insist on living life in those malformed ways, you'll continue to thirst. These, these, these all work the same way. These smooth paths, straight paths, you know, preparing, making, two masters, take up your cross, treasure and pearl. These all work the same way. And this is how Advent becomes sort of penitential, how it becomes preparatory. It's kind of like having important guests over. Like, I don't know, what if your parents live back east and they haven't been here in seven or eight years and you know they're coming and they're going to stay for a week or two and you realize we got to clean, right? Like these are your parents, right? They used to tell you about cleaning your room and now they're going to see your whole house. And so you think, oh, we got to clean. 
and you think, oh, that doorknob to the guest room, that's been broken for years. We need to fix that. Oh, darn, and the toilet leaks, and that towel rack doesn't hang straight. And the light bulb outside their entrance, that doesn't work. Oh, and that chair in their room is sort of broken. We better screw that leg in, right? And you start clearing off countertops and examining and seeing your home in a whole new way because someone's coming. And these are what these texts tell us tonight. These are what these Advent texts tell us. That's all they're saying. Someone's coming. He's coming again. And so make things straight and, and prepare the way, not in meritorious ways, but just in a kind of examine, kind of an Ignatian examine sort of way and see your home or your life in a new way, that the status quo that was good enough when mom and dad weren't coming, no longer is not good enough, but again, not in a more meritorious way, but wanting to bless them, give them a room that actually works. The light switch works, the doorknob works, they can sit in the chair. Out of a heart to love and serve those who are coming. And this is John's picture of the coming of Jesus. And this is how our Advent practices are meant to reorient, reorder our thoughts, our beliefs, values, priorities, and practices. And so two last thoughts before we have a moment of quiet. No matter how fearful or unsure we are about this right now as we think about it, just always remember Philippians and trust in God's initiating and completing grace. And then think secondly. Uh, Think of the reading in Malachi. That when we are refined and when the refiner has had his way and we are purified, then I want you to do me a favor tonight. I want you to trust that it will be for your good. No matter how fearful a prospect it might be right now, to actually go on this journey of spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness, I want you to trust that in the end you'll see that it is good. So he has a moment of quiet. Hear these words of Jesus. Maybe you want to close your eyes and just hear these words. Peace be with you. My peace I give unto you. And I will be with you right up to the end of the age. So peace be with you.